the goal should be to meet user needs and to keep meeting user needs, not to publish things. Welcome to Content in Practice. I'm your host, Blaine Kylo. In each episode, I speak with someone about how we do the work of content. Pad McGillan is a content advocate. He was formerly the head of content design at the Government Digital Service, which manages the website for the Government of the United Kingdom. While there, he helped drive the transformation of that website, which is now held up as an example of a user-focused experience that puts content first. More recently, he's worked on the website for the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, another UK government department, where the goal was to reduce the amount of content by 80%. He's now working on projects in the higher education space, where institutions are needing to undergo digital transformations that are comparable to what transpired with gov.uk. Padma's collected his experience in a book, Lead with Content. Published by Gather Content, it's a manual providing step-by-step -step instructions on how to ensure that any organization shifting to digital prioritizes the content that is at the heart of everything. What I was trying to do was say, if you focus on your content, which is the thing that your users focus on primarily, then in order to make that content good, you are likely to have to do certain things in your organization. So the organization is going to have to change. And these are the sorts of ways that it should change. And these are the ways to make it happen successfully, uh, even in large established organizations that don't like change. One of the things that you, you talk about in the book is how when organizations or companies are small and, and you talk specifically about the startup culture it's really easy for companies to sort of shift on the fly and make these decisions as they go at what point do you think an organization becomes too big for that ad hoc approach to work so i've got a little theory about that and my theory is that humans shouldn't organize themselves larger than a decent sized village so I think um, when you get to about 150 people, with 150 people, there are going to be people that you're friends with, there are going to be people that you're acquaintances with, and then there are going to be people that you just nod out in the street, but you're going to pretty much know everybody by face. When you get beyond that, you inevitably shrink away into groups, and outside of that is not your interest. Like You can't stay on a a genuinely human relationship with everybody when you get beyond that and I think that with organizations when you get bigger than that um, you need several layers of management you need a lot of kind of processes and policies in place you organize yourselves into silos at that point there are enough people in the organization who aren't directly related to either senior management or the end user to mean that the organization gets some momentum of its own that isn't necessarily around meeting the needs of the users or 
working in the direction that the strategic leadership wanted to work in. The organization kind of becomes an entity unto itself, so people can come and go, but the, the thing still happens. Yeah, exactly. It's that, this self-perpetuating thing. It becomes its own culture, it, it gets its own norms, it gets its own language. You know, you can be X company type of person. You know, you can be one of those people who fits in. That means that the company is going to become averse to risk. You know, it's going to start attracting the kinds of people that um, aren't startup type people, aren't looking for that kind of a life. They want um, some security. They want um, to be able to read a manual and to, to know what the structure is and to know what the rules are. Uh, and then once they know it, once they know all that structure, all the rules, all the jargon, all the norms, that gives them status in the organization. And it becomes quite a challenge to try and change that because there's a risk that they will lose their relevance, lose their status. And um, so they're likely to be resistant to, to change. They have a vested interest in maintaining status quo. Absolutely. And, and the thing is, you do actually need that sort of person in an organization of a certain size. And I think, I mean, I generally work with large organizations, even though I'm most comfortable in that kind of startup mode. Large organizations, they, they need stability and they need order and they need process. And they also need to be challenged and they need people on the edges of things doing a kind of Jerry Maguire mission statement. And they need to have people trying to rock the boat a little bit. Um, and if you have too much of either one of those two and you don't have the right balance of those two, then either the company or the organization becomes stagnant and irrelevant and will eventually fail or it is chasing its tail and trying new things all the time and nobody knows what what this company does or what its brand is or you know they can't relate to it so it fails again so you kind of need that balance do you think that there are some common problems that organizations that have hit this critical mass is are there some problems that they uh, kind of all end up facing with content I know for a fact that there are common problems, yeah. I mean, every organization beyond a certain size that I've interacted with in the public sector, the cultural sector, the private sector, they all have the same issues. Like I hear the same stories again and again. And essentially, it's that there are people who are doing the digital work who know what needs to happen, but they don't have the power to make that happen and sustain it. Organizations like that, generally, digital feels quite new, you know? It's, it's like this new internet thing, even though the internet's been around 20 odd years or whatever, it, it feels like an add-on. It's not really what the organization does. Um, they've just got this new window that they need to dress now. Whereas digital transformation is saying, no, digital is now the environment that you live in. If you're not kind of digital first, your organization can't possibly keep up because there are, there are so many opportunities that digital provides for an organization to stay relevant, to stay meeting the needs of its users. If you don't have systems in place to access that and to respond to it much more quickly than you ever have done before and to a much higher standard than you ever have done before, there is no way that you are going to stay relevant for the long run. So your market share might help you out, your kind of the fact that you are written into the law or you're the government of a country or whatever, that, that's going to help 
to to draw out your relevance because people have got nowhere else to go essentially but as soon as there is any other opportunity for people to choose a different way they will take it so time is limited if you don't become a digital first organization no matter what sector you're in then i think your days are numbered not to put too fine a point on it there are examples all over the place of audiences and users actually creating their own digital experience because it wasn't being provided to them by the people they needed it from. Absolutely. And 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 there are a lot of examples of organizations that have every advantage. You know, they have the best research, they they can buy the best consultants, they, they've got a massive market share, they've already got their users that are eager to interact with them and they just get complacent and a new idea comes about and disrupts the, the industry entirely. You know, and that's happened in pretty much every industry. Who'd have thought that, that a website like Netflix could totally decimate a company, for example, like Blockbusters? And yet you look back now and it's, it's inevitable. Same with the music industry, you know? It's like the music industry had every opportunity to respond to the realities of what was going on. But the way that it responded was to try and nail it down through legality, um, rather than to look at, well, what are the actual opportunities here? These are tough uh, conversations to have as an organization and they're tough changes to make, but I don't think there's, a, there's an option but to make them. You were head of content with the government digital service in the United Kingdom. What does head of content do? What does that title mean? What did it mean in, in your context? Uh, I had overall responsibility for the content strategy of the UK government. I had a immediate team of around 60 content designers at the time and was kind of head of a wider community of 2,000 or so people working in content in government. At that time, gov.uk had been launched, but there was still plenty of government content that wasn't on gov.uk. Um, and the period that I was involved really was about all the, the government agencies, so so the, all the government departments had transitioned onto gov.uk, but there were 330-odd agencies that uh, all had their own websites, all had their own ways of doing things, uh, and all had their own cultures. M yeah, moving on to a single government domain was by no means a straightforward yes please to, to a lot of these organisations. There were the kinds of challenges you can imagine to, um, to make it not just, uh, well, you're doing it, this is what we're doing in like it or lump it, uh, to these are the benefits, this is why this is a good idea, this is why you should be excited about the possibilities, and let's help you get on board. We think of governments being centralized organizations, but the truth is that they are massive bureaucracies that are much more distributed. A government isn't a homogenous entity. A government isn't one beast, it's many beasts. And the beasts within the beasts have all got different agendas and uh, they have a great deal of patience as well. So, you know, even if you think that you're winning, um, 10 years down the line, maybe you're not. It's unusually exciting environment to be trying to do something like digital transformation in. And at that point, we had support from the highest levels of government. And we were able to genuinely look 
to meet the needs of citizens and businesses and you know everybody in the country and everybody who, who is wanting to deal with the country in the best possible way rather than well we can probably make it five percent better without ruffling too many feathers it was actually let's just rework this from the ground up and see what comes out and let's use the the best thinking and the best people from the digital sector and let's create a new kind of civil servant and a new way of doing a government department and let's see if we can really make government relevant to citizens you know just change the relationship between government and citizens rather than it being the we are the authority you must listen the idea i think was we are here to serve you what are your needs what are the needs that government should be meeting and how can we best meet them let's talk about it and you, you know you talk about it through user research and you talk about it through looking at analytics data you know you talk to all the different stakeholders and you build a picture of what are the parameters of this and what are the opportunities here and what could we do differently and how differently can we do it and then we do it and then we test it and we keep changing it in that kind of agile fashion uh, until it, it genuinely is in line with user needs. One of the things that organizations have difficulty with is the notion that their users or customers aren't everybody. But a government does need to meet the needs of all its citizens. I asked Padma how the government digital service addressed that. On the one hand, it is everybody. On the other hand, one person has one need at one time that they're trying to meet. So they may, in, in this moment, they may be somebody in a business looking to find out how do I pay my taxes properly. In the next moment, they might be trying to get planning permission for a new extension on their property. In the next minute, they might be finding out how do I deal with and who do I deal with in government because I, I'm dealing with uh, a relative who's just died and I need to take care of all the things that I need to, to take care of. Although on the one hand it is everybody, on the other hand, there is a person in a particular state with a particular need at a particular time. And if you can meet that need and understand that person, then you're not dealing with everybody, you're dealing with one particular user. And then you can broaden that out to an extent to this user type, you know, or this person in this particular context, in this particular space in their life, in this particular mode. The notion is that you might actually be talking to all citizens, but they all become subsets depending on their unique context. And when you understand the subset, when you understand their mental model in trying to deal with this particular issue at this particular time, and you can organize your content and structure it and structure the whole user journey for them in a way that fits with that mental model. They will have an intuitive experience. They will have a, a good, positive, easy experience of dealing with your content and they will be able to do the thing that they need to do. Quite often people are in pretty stressed out states. You know, this is serious stuff. I've just lost my job or I've just received this bill and I don't know how to pay it or who to pay it. And it says that I'm gonna get fined if I don't pay it. It's about how do we make it as least stressful as possible? You know, how do we make it as fast and as easy and as non-judgmental and as unpower trippy as possible so that you as a citizen are served by your government 
and you can just get on with your life, you know, so that this bit is as a smaller part as possible. Like, you know, people don't do this stuff for fun. For me, it's about shortening that user's journey, shortening the amount of content, making it as quick and straightforward as possible. The digital shift that created the new gov.uk website was truly transformational. The project and the resulting website are still held up as examples of impeccable content strategy and design. I asked Padma how the content migration was approached. While migrations typically involve moving content from one system to another, Padma explained that wasn't the case with gov.uk. With that project, all of the old content was simply removed. And it wasn't even added back. It was, let's look at what user needs all this content ports to meet. Uh, and if there's a proposed user need that comes out of that, then we will interrogate it and look at it and like, look at how many people are actually visiting that page. And if there are lots of people visiting that page, then probably it is a user need. So let's find out more about that. And then once we've got the user need, we can then look at creating a content plan to meet that user need and to meet the related user needs and to start to build a site that is based on what people are actually needing rather than what we want to say or what we know about or whatever. So you're moving from a subject area based site and a site that's organized based on the way that our organization is organized to a site that's based on what do our users need from us and how do they need us to present that so that it makes sense to them based on their understanding of this subject area you know because quite often they're not experts and even when they are experts um, that's not to say that they have the same way of thinking about it as an expert who's on the other side of the fence but the work doesn't stop there once the new gov.uk website was up and running there was a necessity to shift into an operational mode to maintain the newly designed content, making adjustments as necessary, and to create new content to meet the changing needs of the audience. I think the question comes down to who should be giving it the attention and how much should that attention cost? How much is content worth? I think there's a, there's a sort of a general story in, in the way that people have dealt with their content in organizations where it, the web was a relatively new thing. Somebody said, let's have a website. Most people thought, oh, what's the point of that? But somebody was enthusiastic, so they let them do the website. And that person was the web person. And then it became clear that the internet is actually going to probably stick around and people seem to be taking it seriously, so maybe we should too. So let's get that person a couple of colleagues and they can be the web team and then it, it becomes clear that actually if we're going to do this properly it's going to be really expensive so maybe rather than thinking about how to do that well what we should do is we should just give everyone around the organization publishing rights and they can write the stuff that they know about because everybody knows how to write obviously and they can just hit publish and it'll just magically work and so everything will be on the website and so any user who needs anything will be able to find it. And it will be practically free because we already employ these people. Uh, and that's where a lot of organizations are at right now. And it doesn't work because what happens is people write and write and write. Uh, they forget about the things they wrote six months ago that is no longer relevant. They don't think about what's already up there and they write more that's pretty much the same. And before you know it, the website's growing several thousand pages a year. There's duplicate content everywhere. Users can't find anything. 
and it becomes eventually a crisis. At that point, you have a, as an organization, you, you have a decision to make. And quite often the decision is, oh, let's have a new content management system. But really, you need to fundamentally rethink your content ops model, uh, which means that you need a content strategist to come and properly think about it. And you also need to commit some proper money. Uh, what seems to work well is a kind of hub and spoke model. You know, you, you can't have a central team doing everything. Like there's never enough money for that but you need a central team and that central team needs to be the people who are responsible for the quality of the site and the structure of the site and the user experience um, because they should be the specialists in user experience. Now that circles us back to something that you talked about right at the beginning of our conversation and that is groups like this content team that is at the hub of the spokes having all of the responsibility but none of the authority. The worst case scenario is that that team, no matter how specialist it, it is or no ma matter how passionate it is, is treated by the organization as basically publishing monkeys. And they're right at the end of the process and their job is essentially to take the draft content that um, comes to them from wherever and put it on the internet and hit publish. Um, that's the worst case scenario. Whereas actually what needs to happen is anything that comes in from the organization, the first question is, is there a user need for this? The second question is, how do you know there's a user need for this? What's your evidence? And then the next stage is, whatever it is that's been written is source material. You should expect this content to be fundamentally reworked based on a content designer's understanding of content design, you know, or a UX professional's understanding of UX. And the organization should get used to not having somebody there to hit publish, but having somebody there who they can work with to create great content that works for users. Solving this problem requires reflection on the various roles and responsibilities that can be assigned to content. That the, the need to split out subject matter expertise from content expertise um, in terms of content ownership. You know, so quite often subject matter experts in an organization get called the content owners. I think that you need a fundamental shift away from that, that actually the con they own the facts and the content team or the user UX team or however you're organized, they own the user experience and together they own the content. Without that fundamental split being agreed at the highest levels in the organization, anything that you want to do is always compromised. And I think that in large organizations where you've got job descriptions and you've got um, performance appraisals and all that sort of thing, that needs to be thought about because um, when you come for your performance review, if you can say there was no new content published this year from my department, like all the user needs were met and we didn't do a thing, and, and you get a big thumbs up for that, that is really important. Whereas if you, in order to look like you're performing, you need to say, oh yes, we published another 20 things this year or, or whatever, whether there's a need for it or not, that responsibility shouldn't be with them. The, and the, the goal should be to meet user needs and to keep meeting user needs, not to publish things. I love that notion that success could actually be not creating content. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's kind of uncomfortable for organizations in initially. Oh, we need to be broadcasting. We need to be telling people stuff. We need to be creating a noise. 
that kind of old style drown people in the message and eventually they'll get it way of doing things just doesn't work in digital to be confident enough to do nothing when nothing needs to be done is part of becoming a, a mature digital organization i think you've been listening to content in practice this episode was produced by kathy wagner and me Thanks to Pad McGillan for being our guest. Thanks also to Francesca Caleb at Gather Content. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. This podcast is presented by Content Strategy Incorporated, a consultancy focused exclusively on content strategy. Find us online at contentstrategyinc.com. Thanks for listening to Content in Practice. I'm Blaine Kyloff.